All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Honesty Bilal. I'm your host, Bilal Med, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at the University of Toledo. And this is Honesty Bilal, the show for the aspiring ophthalmologist, where I sit down and talk with medical students interested in ophthalmology, residents training in ophthalmology, and current ophthalmologists in the field today. My guest today is Dr. John Kitchens. Dr. Kitchens is a vitreoretinal surgeon at the Retina Associates of Kentucky. He did his medical school at IU, followed by his residency at the University of Iowa, followed by a chief residency year at the Baskin Palmer Eye Institute, and then a fellowship in vitreoretinal surgery at the Baskin Palmer Eye Institute. And Dr. Kitchens is such a nice guy. I mean, I, I actually got to sit down with him, have brunch with him and his family uh, last weekend. And, and I can tell you that the whole Kitchens family really knows how to, how to cook a good brunch and how to host a, host a kid from, uh, from uh, E-Town, Kentucky. So uh, Dr. Kitchens, thanks for joining me. I'm so excited that we could do this. It's fun, it's fun doing an interview with somebody you've met in person, like you, you just mentioned to me, and uh, there's that rapport there. So I'm looking forward to, to picking your brain and getting your story. You know, thanks, Bilal. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, you know, it's funny. You suffered through my wife and I doing Whole30. So I've got to admit, breakfast is much better when you come over and we're not doing Whole30. Just a little background. We were beginning our Whole30 month, and it's been so torturous. Um, but Bilal happened to be the victim of being invited over when we were only doing that. So he had to endure a breakfast casserole that was maybe not as good as we would have made it no. normally, but you rolled with the punches as far as that goes. Hey, we hey how was your time in, in Lexington, by the way, Bilal? Oh, it's been awesome. I recommend Lexington to anybody who's not been around. I don't know if a lot of people, I feel like, you know, you, you could probably understand this, but a lot of people from, who are not from Kentucky don't know much too much about Kentucky. And obviously I, I'm from here. I know you're not necessarily from here, but you've spent so much time here now. And uh, Lexington is definitely one of those places for people who, who may not be familiar where it's, it's a college town feel. Obviously, you have the University of Kentucky, a rich storied basketball history here. Um, but, you know, there's, it's a growing population. It's very diverse. I can tell you that much for anybody who doesn't know. And uh, definitely the most hospitable place um, just from people like you who've had me at their house. And, and uh, you know, even people like Dr. Gary Wirtz who've had me over at his OR just watching some cataract surgeries in the past. And, and I really got to speak highly about the program here. Um, I'm doing a way rotation for people who don't know and at the University of Kentucky right now. And uh, I can tell you that there's a, there's, a small, there's a small town feel here, but also a big international appeal here too. So anybody who's not from Lexington, check it out. It's a, it's a great city. And I'll tell you for the aspiring ophthalmology residents, and I probably shouldn't say this because it's gonna make it maybe more popular. That department is really a family atmosphere. I mean, Andy Pearson, the chairman there has been the chairman for over 20 years um, and they just have such a warmth to that department. It's not too big. Uh, we of course share a fellowship with those guys and so we get to know them on a whole different level from that standpoint. But I would imagine, and I, I know because we've taken enough uh, ophthalmology residents from UK into the fellowship that they really love their time and their experience here. They can do a lot of cataract surgery. Yeah. Uh, they get a lot of exposure to subspecialties because there's not a lot of fellowships offered here beyond retina. And I think they do occasional, they do glaucoma routinely, yeah, right. uh, but not a lot of cornea fellowship uh, competitions. So you get to do a fair number of cornea cases and whatnot. Very, very good program um, with great fundamental training. Absolutely, absolutely. And the thing is here, I will tell you that even the fellows, uh, I, I worked with some of the fellows over the past few weeks and I have to, have to give a shout out to uh, Osama and Shivani and, 
and, uh, and, and all the other fellows out there, all the three of the fellows are there. They've been so kind and they're really good teachers too. So I think one of the things I can tell you, anybody who's out there who's interested in teaching, that this is a program that uh, the residents and the fellows here, they do take med students under their wing. They do teach you. They do give you a chance to be part of the team feel. So if you're interested in that, if you're interested in being a teacher during residency or fellowship even, uh, check out Lexington, check out UK. And uh, yeah, that's, that's the plug for the day for UK. One more plug, by the way, is on our fellowship. You know, we do a combined yeah. fellowship with UK. We do two uh, fellows one year and one the next year. Mm -hmm. It's a combined private practice academic program where you get exposure to over 15 different retina specialists. Everybody kind of trained different places, which is great. Our fellows come out doing 700 to 900 cases is primary. Uh, lots of buckles, lots of bad diabetic uh, surgeries, and lots of membrane peeling, macular hole surgeries. We train some of the very best surgical retina fellows, I think, in the world that come out of here. And routinely when they go into practice, they, they are some of the best surgeons in their community from day one. They're very confident surgically. And so this is a, a really, really great surgical retina fellowship program for anybody that's interested. And it's one of those things that's pretty cool because until I met you, I didn't really know that there's these hybrid type models of fellowship programs where you have academic and you have, you know, a private practice that can come together. So that's a really unique thing about being here is that if you're interested in vitriol surgery and you want to do a fellowship, you get both aspects of your training when you're here. Um, so I'm sure those people who are interested in that and probably look to that. Um, so again, like you said, that's a great plug for people who are interested in that. If you're, if you're a resident training, uh, look for fellowship spots. If you happen to watch my show or if you're a med student who knows that you, maybe you're interested in retina, then you know, keep in the back of your mm -hmm. mind for a place to go to. So, yeah. And tons and the ingenuity. I got to give a shout out to University as Ingenuity. We have Ingenuity at several different places that we operate. Really just a great opportunity to do, to do very hands-on yet well-coached, well-mentored uh, surgical training. Yeah. And as a med student who's held the keyboard, I can tell you that even holding the keyboard with those glasses on is nerve-wracking, but if you can do it, it's a confidence booster and ingenuity is probably the coolest thing I've seen in OR. So again, anybody's out there interested in ophthalmology, even if you're a med student who doesn't know too much about ophthalmology, I can tell you that if you see one case in the OR and ingenuity, you're going to be interested in ophthalmology. I, I, I pretty much put my money on it. So yeah, we will, we will get right to it because I know it's a similar story for you about how you got interested in ophthalmology was that you happened to wander into an OR one day. So you have a very interesting story, uh, Dr. Kitchens, because you were not, you, you were pretty open with me about it. And, I, and, I've, and I've read it other places and heard other places where you've been open about it too, that in college, you were kind of lost. You, you were struggling in organic chemistry. You, you had a 2.8 GPA and uh, you kind of had a wake up call like, hey, this is it. Like, if I don't get my act together, I'm not going to get to med school. You had that eureka moment. And then in med school, you found ophthalmology. So tell your story. Talk about how that, 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 that kind of, uh, that, that kid at, uh, you know, in college became John Kitchen's uh, retina surgeon today. Yeah, you know, Bilal, it's really interesting. I, I don't think if you had met me in high school, you would have thought that I was destined to be a doctor, much less a retina surgeon. Uh, I grew up in a small town in Southern Indiana, about 800 people. My high school graduating class was 44, and I think I graduated ninth out of 44. Um, so I, you know, I did well at the beginning of high school, but then I kind of tapered off my senior year. And honestly got into too much partying and got interested in the girls and whatnot. Didn't go to college with any clue of what I wanted to do, but my mom just said, why don't you go in as a pre-med major because the girls will like it and it gets you good <laughs> fundamental training. And so I thought that's great. I joined a fraternity. I commuted my first semester and that was a bad idea because I just was still living a high school life while going to college and that just didn't work. And then 
I pledged a fraternity, moved in the fraternity house. And that was, um, it was just a lot of partying and yeah. a lot of underage drinking and stuff that probably, um, I should have been more mature. Uh, and I love the fact that my kids are better, way better versions than I am uh, of me. You know, yeah. I mean, I look at them and I go, wow, I just cannot believe it's a mother influence and from that side of things. And then honestly, my, my freshman year, I ended up with a 2.8 and my sophomore year I started out and I had a, uh, I had a failing grade, uh, actually a D minus in organic chemistry. And I dropped organic chemistry, which took me down to about 10 credit hours. And that's not a full-time student load. Yeah, right. But at the same time, I started dating my wife who really kind of, you know, was more of an even keel influence. Mm -hmm. And I decided that I didn't want to look back on my life and say, you know what? I could have been that guy that did this. Sure. Um, and I worked the maintenance crew that summer. It's funny that summer between my freshman and sophomore year, I worked the maintenance crew and the guys knew I wasn't a great student, but I was a hard worker. Yeah. And so I remember them calling me in and it was fun working the maintenance crew. We pulled out asbestos, we put in drop ceilings, we sure. carpeted floors. Yeah. And uh, the maintenance crew director called me in and said, you know, listen, I think if you want to, you could drop out of college. And within four or five years, I believe that you could be running the maintenance crew here at University of Evansville. Huh. And, you know, to his credit, that was a huge compliment to, yeah. him, you know, to me to basically say yeah. you, in five years, you could have my job. Yeah. But I thought to myself, my gosh, I aspire to be so much more than the guy in charge of the maintenance crew at the University of Evansville. And this is where I'm headed. You know, I read a great book by Dale Carnegie, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. Started dating my wife. And you know what? In those 10 hours that I had that first semester of my sophomore year, yeah. I was actually able to focus on just learning how to study. Mm. And I ended up, you know, I ended up getting a 3.83 that first, at the end of that first semester. Okay. And I was like, you know what? I think I can do this. And so the second semester, I bulked up a little bit more. I took a bunch of summer classes then. Okay. The next year, it worked out in my favor because that was my junior year. I had to take organic chemistry and physics together. Mm -hmm. And those are the two biggest things emphasized on the MCAT. So by the end of that year, I was ready to go for the MCAT. I didn't need to do any preparatory courses because I yeah. just fin finished organic and physics mm -hmm. with 20 plus hours per semester for two semesters. Sure. And I rolled right in and did well on the MCAT right. and just continued that process of just hardcore. Every Friday, Saturday night, I didn't go to parties. I went and studied. I found an empty classroom and I would write and rewrite my notes on the board over and over and ended up um, in those last uh, three years graduating, really two and a half years, taking summer classes every summer with a double major and a minor in psychology um, and uh, like a 3.6 GPA. So I got it up to a level where I could get into medical school. I did well enough on my NCATs to get into medical school. And, and that was just such a fortunate thing that I saw that light and was able to turn it around. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's okay to have that light if you need it. You know, it's not always normal to be uh, starting day one to you know, that be the shining star. I think everybody finds their own footing in different parts. And I think that's what's something I've appreciated from a lot of the guests who've been on my show who have been uh, similar to you in terms of where they are in their careers now. Uh, you know, I was talking to Dr. Paul Chan yesterday, who was a chair at the University of uh, Illinois Chicago, a good friend of yours. And, and you know, it seems like it's, it's, it's funny because I think you, you, you hear these names and, and you look at these people and you're like, wow, they must have never 
you know, they must have always been perfect student. They must have always just been the top of the top. And it's funny because I talked to you, I talked to Dr. Chan, talked to Dr. Luck and Paul and, and others who just say that, you know what, uh, I hit a point where I was like, now it's a bit of luck. It's a bit of hard work, but the hard work really takes up the luck. And then the hard work will make that luck roll. And there's more luck after that. So it's just really interesting to hear that, you know, everybody can have that second chance, that redemption uh, part of their career. And that can actually motivate you to become a lot more and uh, can take off from there. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a real, it was really kind of a, a comeback, if you will. Yeah, there you go. So, and then, you know, you're, you're going through medical school, you're, you got your, the ball's rolling now, you're at IU, uh, great medical school, and then uh, you're in your third year for, in almost fourth year, and you're, and you're looking at specialties, and you're, you're thinking internal medicine at one point, and then your rotation doesn't work out for you that you, you wanted, uh, and then you stumble to ophthalmology. So talk about how that kind of uh, serendipitous moment happened for you, and how, look where you are now. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There are certain times in life when you, you see these, and they're always in retrospect, you know, yeah. when you see these major things that have happened and you don't appreciate them at the time. But this was one that I pretty much appreciated at the time. You know, everybody, it seemed like in third year was figuring out exactly what they wanted to do, yeah. you know, and we all experience this where, you know, your friend goes, I'm going to go into dermatology. Somebody does a rotation in endocrinology mm -hmm. and says, that's what I want to be. And sometimes it's easy to get depressed and feel like, hey, I'm, I'm not getting it, you know? I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. so my third year, I thought I wanted to do internal medicine and my sub-I got scheduled in December or January, which was going to be too late for me to get a good medicine reference for uh, a medicine residency. Sure. So I kind of said, you know what, I'm going to go back in and revise my schedule. And I ended up just throwing everything away and saying, I'm going to just try some surgical subspecialties. Yeah. I did not like general surgery when I was going through things. I wasn't a hardcore, I want to be in the hospital 18 hours a day, yeah. live that lifestyle. But I said, you know what, I'll try ophthalmology and I'll try um, interventional radiology and I'll try orthopedics just to see if any of those things fit. Mm -hmm. And uh, my first rotation was on ophthalmology and I did pediatrics the first week and I hated it. And I thought, this is it. I'm not doing ophthalmology for sure. I did glaucoma second and I was like, nope, no way. This is just, I just stand there while the guy would say it's a 0.9 cup to disc and the pressure is 15 and then tell him about some drops that I didn't know what they were. Mm -hmm. And I'm just standing there watching no images, no OCTs, you know, nothing. And so uh, the glaucoma specialist, a really nice guy who's the chairman there, Lou Cantor, mm -hmm. um, was a big speaker and he really loved speaking. And so he said to me, you know, he was leaving on a Thursday to go give a talk on a Friday. And he said, you know, I don't need you tomorrow. There's nobody in clinic. You can have the day off or you can go to the library or you can go watch some surgeries, whatever you want to do. And so I went down to the uh, university hospital OR and I almost didn't do it. I almost thought, you know what, let's just take the day off and, you know, go for a jog and whatever. Yeah. But I went down there and I said to the lady at the front desk, what kind of eye cases do you have? And she's like, well, Dr. Ron Dennis is doing some surgeries in room two. He's doing some detachment surgeries. And so I said, all right, you know what? So I just popped in there and it was that aha moment. Yeah. You know, it was, and Ron, Ron doesn't do surgery anymore, but he was a really great surgeon uh, and a really great guy at IU, one of my first mentors in retina. He now is in charge of the reading center up in Wisconsin. Okay. But uh, basically, Ron essentially loved surgical video. Mm -hmm. So one of the things he did, and this is in 99, so there weren't a lot of flat panel LCD, or at the time it was a plasma TV, in the OR hooked up to a scope that had a camera on it, but Ron had done that. Mm -hmm. And so he was fixing a CMV-related retinal detachment. Mm 
Um, and I remember walking in and seeing him doing laser on it and putting in oil. Yeah. And I thought to myself, man, this is what I want to do, For you sure. know? And so then I did research with Ron. I, I basically was just his constant companion for anything yeah. and everything he wanted to do. And, uh, and so um, that kind of just, I changed everything then from, you know, my interventional radiology and orthopedics, it became retina and mm -hmm. research. Yep. And so I just was like, this is what I'm going to do. And I just threw everything into that over the next like six months. And then it just became, you know, you matched the great place, you matched the University of Iowa. I mean, after that, you had a really interesting transition where you became the chief resident at Baskin Palmer, even though you didn't do your initial residency at Baskin Palmer, but uh, you're one of the only people who's ever done that and you did a fellowship at Baskin Palmer. So it's crazy because these are, these are very, you know, well-known places for training in ophthalmology and retina and everything. So it's, it's, it's almost insane how one person just kind of, you know, you just influence a whole path for you and just, you know, in those places. Oh, absolutely. And I remember uh, Ron Dennis telling me, you know, when we were going through, he was kind of my de facto um, advisor. Yeah. Even though my advisor was a, a really great uh, neurologist, uh -huh. he was my de facto advisor for how to get into ophthalmology. And I remember him telling me like, okay, here's the places you should apply and you should apply to Johns Hopkins, but I don't think you'll get in there because you're not as good as the student we used to have here, who is the best student I've ever trained, sure. a guy named Byron Ladd. And so Byron's a good friend of mine now. I met Byron years and years later, but he came out of medical school a few years ahead of me and he was legendary oh, when wow. it came to Indiana University School of Medicine because he got into Wilmer. Mm. And nobody coming from Indiana gets into a place like Wilmer, but Byron was so good and so smart that he got into Wilmer and was a star at Wilmer, won a, the cataract surgery award from there and everything wow. such as that. But I remember Ron saying, you know, you're not Byron, so mm -hmm. don't expect to get in there, but you should apply there. Yeah. But Iowa was the top of my list, and I was really top of my list for two things, two reasons. Number one um, is it's a great, great training program. And it is just fantastic. They have such great people and they've been there forever. So if anybody's looking for residency program advice, Iowa is fantastic. It was fantastic 20 years ago. It is fantastic still because the same people are there. The second reason was because I thought of all the top 10 programs, this is the one place I think I have a shot at Yeah. because it's, it's in Iowa, you know, and I kind of thought, you know what, people want to live in Miami, people want to live in Los Angeles, people want to yeah. live in Chicago, but maybe there's going to be half the people who say, you know what, I just don't know if I can live in Iowa City for three mm -hmm. years. And I was like, dude, bring it on. I, yeah. I would love living in Iowa City <laughs> yeah. for three years. And I actually matched there. Um, and then I, I did well there. And I ended up getting this very unique position in Miami at Baskin Palmer, which was a one-year surgical fellowship followed by a chief residency year. Mm -hmm. which you're in charge of the trauma service and um, you're in charge of the residents from a chief standpoint. You have Dr. Getty, who's the residency director there, who's great, but you kind of run a really critical role for the indigent patients there. You do a lot of autonomous surgery your second year, sure. do a lot of the injuries and stuff like that. And it's a very different program from a resident standpoint, being a chief resident, you could see it. Mm -hmm. um, the residents there get way more autonomy than in Iowa. They get great training, but it's a, it's more autonomous for the most part, mm. whereas Iowa is very structured and hands-on. And so it's really unique to see 
the insights of two different programs. Right. Some, a place like Iowa that is so structured and so, you know, just very mentored. And then something like Bascom Palmer that is so autonomous, you know, and has brilliant residents and, and has good structure and great training, but it's just a different environment and yeah. both work great. Sure. Residents can learn great in each spot. And I feel for a person who should be destined for Iowa, mm -hmm. who gets into Bascom mm -hmm. and it's not their learning style. Yeah. And people who should be in Iowa, they get into Bascom, you know, and they're a mismatch for their program. They'll still do great because if you get into one of these two programs, you are going to be very good. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's interesting that there are certain programs that match certain personalities. Yeah, and that's something that, you know, it's it's definitely very applicable this season because, you know, granted, it's virtual interviews. You can't really go to places this year. And and you touched on something that I think I think a lot of us are starting to realize that you got to go somewhere that fits your learning style. You got to go somewhere that fits who you are. And obviously, it's a, it's a shame that we don't get to know, but uh, we don't get to know ourselves this year. But, you know, I think hearing from people like you about the different programs and, and even, you know, Iowa and Baskin Palmer are both very high-ranked places. But even, you know, they have such stark differences. So very interesting to hear that. Uh, and, you know, speaking of um, your, the people that you trained with, and, and I know you've had a lot of good friends down at all these places at Bascom and Iowa and stuff. Part of what you, you uh, part of a big part of your career has been the Vit Buckle Society. Uh, you've also, you're also the host of New Retina Radio. So you're involved with things. I mean, you, you've stayed evolving. You've, you've, you've found new ways to meet people, to, to uh, grow these relationships and, and to not only mentor people like me, but also, you know, try new things. And I'm sure like, you know, being the host of a radio show or, or starting the Vit Buckle Society with some of your best friends, like these are, these are like things that take some element of risk or, you know, things that you're like, okay, I'm not, I'm not super, you know, aware of this kind of thing, but I'll try it. So what is, uh, what's your mentality when it comes to just trying new things? What, what are you, are you the kind of guy who says yes to a lot of opportunities or give, give us some uh, feedback on that? Yeah, and to a point where I, I actually had to a couple of years ago start saying no, because yeah. it was just, I would say yes to everything. And I could talk to, about that in a, a little bit here. But, you know, what really helped me, a few key things. Number one, when I was at Iowa, uh, we had grand rounds every day. Mm -hmm. And and that's very rigorous. You know, every day we get together at 7 a.m. And from 7 till 7.45, we would have grand rounds. And two wow. to three residents or fellows would present. Yeah. And that's where I learned to love to talk, though, mm -hmm. and present cases. And there was one month there, because people knew I loved to present, one month where I think I did every day of the month I presented. Wow. And they're always looking. After the first couple of months, they're just looking for anybody to present because it's so much. Yeah. Um, but it's great content. I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong, but it's like, man, you, you will present two or three times sometimes in a month. And I was just like, you know what? I can throw these talks together quickly. Sure. It got me very good at talking in front of people. Okay. Mm -hmm. The second thing that kind of molded my direction was going to Bascom Palmer and meeting Carmen Pugliafito, you know, and being in an environment where, you know, they were very accepting of, Hey, we want to, we want to promote you guys, mm -hmm. you know, and they didn't do it directly, but I'll tell you a lot of people at that time wanted to come down and wanted to meet with Carmen and Phil Rosenfeld and, because of the OCT and the Avastin and all the yeah. anti-VEGF stuff going on. Such an exciting time to be a Baskin Palmer. But these guys wouldn't just say, okay, let's go out. They'd say, let's take these fellows out. Mm -hmm. And so I got to meet a lot of really great industry people from a very early age. And I know some people will say, oh, you know what? Interacting with industry is not a great thing. You know, 
industry can be a very good thing. It's how we get progress made and whatnot. And if you find the really genuine good people in industry, yeah. um, they all want the same thing, which is they want what's best for patients. Yeah. And so getting to meet and know those people then prepared me and getting to meet my co-fellows like Andrew Moshfagi and Gita Luani and people like that that were at Bascom Palmer at that time. We really had a great strong crew of people that then were able to kind of start to be influential from an earlier age uh, with things. And so they really fostered that at Bascom Palmer, whereas I think perhaps in other places it would be like, look, you're the fellows. We're going to go do this dinner thing with the corporate people and you guys stay back and take call. And yeah. these guys were more than happy to say, yeah, come along. I want you to meet these people. So that was very good. And then early on coming out here, I realized that, you know, really partnering with industry put, um, put me at least in a position to be able to get to meet a lot of people, Yeah, you know, and it through going and giving talks through doing different things uh, through first print media and then through kind of more virtual media and stuff like that. And just created this really nice sphere of people that you know, and there's nothing better than going to a meeting and seeing a lot of people and you know them all, you yeah. know, it just really feels so good to be able to walk up and go, Oh yeah, there's Steve from Charlottesville, you know, or, Oh yeah, there's Brandon from Nashville, you know, and you yeah. get to spend time with these people. It makes the meeting so much more enjoyable and social. Mm. And then the final thing really early on was Bitbuckle Society. Yeah. So Bitbuckle Society was not my idea, but I was lucky to get invited into it because I had several friends whose idea it was. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll tell you, those guys just had such a great energy. And their idea was, look, we know it takes time to get to that level of a Steve Charles or a Kirk Paco or Tim Murray. And so we, we want to have that kind of group influence that young retina specialists need out there and we want to be yeah. dedicated to that and so just a really great group of people that were, were just breaking barriers when it comes yeah. to fun meetings and being loose and you know poking fun at each other and just yeah. doing offbeat stuff that made the meeting so enjoyable as far as that goes yeah i think it's and it's just, it's really interesting because I have never, I didn't know too much about Bitbuckle. I mean, I listened to Dr. Shreeder's podcast straight from the car's mouth. And I saw that he talks about Bitbuckle every now and then. I was like, what is this Bitbuckle thing? Uh, little did I know I would host Dr. Luck and Paul and hear the whole origin story of it. And then, you know, people like you and Dr. Paul Chan. And it's just crazy to see, like, I think it's actually the more I've heard about it, the more it's really been inspiration for people like me because, you know, we're a newer generation and, and we're in this phase right now where COVID-19 is probably going to shape how we do a lot of things. I mean, in the, you know, bigger part of our careers. And I think there's a little bit of inspiration from Bitbuckle to kind of, you know, use that to be like, you can always have a voice at any stage of your career. You can always be uh, someone of, of some importance at any point. So you should never just wait and think it's going to happen later. You know, you can try it now. Why not? So I think that's a one cool thing I've really taken from Bitbuckle. You're absolutely right. And you know what I love about Bitbuckle? It's like the A team, you know, basically yeah. you have, you have people who have their strengths and yeah. the strength that, that I had was just being kind of funny and creative, mm -hmm. which is a very easy strength to have. Sure. The people that I was paired with are people like Paul Chan and Charlie Wyckoff and Derek Kunamoto who were finishers. You know, these are guys who you throw out an idea mm. and they make it happen, yeah. you know? And if you can find a way to surround yourself, if you can identify whether you are 
kind of more of that ideas person or more of that execution person. Mm. And whichever one you are, pair yourself with a good opposite style of person. Yeah. So by being in that, I could find that I could be with other ideas people, but we were paired with doers, mm. you know, people who would make things happen. Yeah. And that's when you get this amazing chemistry. That's very true. Yeah, that's really cool. I think it's one of those things that I heard this on podcast I was listening to that Dr. Ward showed me. And it's like, build, there's builders and sellers. And if you can be, you know, the best people can be both. And if you can pair yourself with people who are builders and sellers, the world's at your, at your feet. So it's just kind of interesting to making partnerships and following, finding colleagues who are at stages of training with you who become lifelong friends. I think that's just really, it's really cool and endearing to see because I think that makes you kind of realize like the best days are maybe to come, like, you know, in, in this whole process and, and you never know who you're going to meet and become friends with. So very cool stuff. You, you touched on something that, that uh, I wanted to know more about. And, and it's really fun because this is one of those interviews where we just said, all right, let's just start rolling. We'll, we'll just start going with it and see where we go. And, and one thing I do know about you that you touched on, and uh, even I've read about this about you is that you really like presentations. And a lot of medical, uh, a, a medical student who, um, who watches the show was asking me, hey, can you ask one of your guests uh, what makes a good grand rounds presentation or what makes a good presentation? And uh, I figured that you'd probably be the best person to ask because even for myself, I have, a present, I have two presentations this week. And, and uh, you know, what's, what's your advice on how, how to give a good presentation? Well, yeah, that's a great question, Bilal. Once again, I love this, just rolling off the, off the cuff with things. So first of all, I think find your style. Okay. Everybody's going to have their own style. And if your style is standing behind a podium, you know, with a suit and tie on and having your slides in a certain way, do that. Don't try to duplicate somebody else's style. Yeah. yeah. For me, what I like to do is I like to, first of all, tell a story. Okay. Mm -hmm. I like to use humor to tell a story too. So I like some funny things that engage the audience usually at, at first, you know, something that is kind of an opening to just get people engaged and interested in what you're going to say. So instead of just saying, okay, today we're going to talk about X, Y, or Z, tell a little bit of an anecdote at the beginning and then, you know, kind of start to roll, you know, into things. I also, you'll notice I never put words on my slides. Oh. Very rarely do I have slides. I always love images or graphs. Oh, okay. And the reason I like that is, is because I don't ever want to have to remember what is on my slide. I just want to remember what I'm supposed to say, mm. because then I never contradict myself, you know? So it's one thing if you have a slide bullet point that says, you know, that there's a 0.1% chance of endophthalmitis, blah, blah, blah. And you say there's a 1% and then you're at a, a discord. I also don't want to get caught reading my slides. Yeah. So I will put something up that's either a video or an image or maybe a single word mm -hmm. to remind me this is what I'm going to talk about for yeah. this slide. Yeah, and yeah. then I just free flow off of that mm -hmm. and just kind of say what I wanted to say and try to get that point across. So um, that's kind of my general you know, style of doing things. Some of that comes from uh, a few speakers that I've watched, Steve Jobs was always a great speaker yep. and he never had words on his slides for the most part. He had such visually engaging slides and I like to emulate that. Yep. Um, the second one is I, I watched some of our ministers that mm -hmm. do Andy Stanley is a great guy as far as speaking and um, uh, John Weiss here and at our church is just okay. a fantastic public speaker. Sure. And then I really think Barack Obama was a fantastic public speaker. Now he's not my style. But I just really love watching him speak because yeah. he's so eloquent with what That's he says cool. and so yeah. chosen with his words. Mm. So watch people speak. 
and use that to find your style and to kind of tweak your style. And then I never mind harvesting a good idea, you mm -hmm. know? So I hear stuff all the time at church during presentations sure. that I'm thinking, you know what? I'm going to take that. That is so applicable to retina. And yeah. then I just basically can take that and, and put it in. But I think tell a good story, do mm -hmm. it in your own words. For me, it's not with a bunch of bullet points on the slide. Not that that's a problem if that's your style. And, uh, and then basically just kind of keep, keep things moving, you know, just make sure that you're, you're succinct and you're on time. And some people have that natural clock inside their head and other people right. it's harder for. Sure. So basically you're telling me that I can just, uh, stop my PowerPoint now and just leave it blank and I'm good to go. That's, I just supposed to yeah, pick you need some pictures in there. <laughs> just, just pick, get some pictures off the web, put uh -huh. the pictures in, know what you're going to talk about. It's a little better when you do that once you have kind of some stuff on your own. For right now, as a med student, I would say right. bullet points are good, data is good, sure. graphs are good. Don't roll with the Steve Jobs presentation Not yet, right? as Too a good. medical student. Yeah. yeah. Get <laughs> just a little bit out before you start doing that. 100%. That's a good, that's a good, that's yeah. a good balance there. I like that. So, you know, and speaking of medical students, you know, the show is meant for the, that audience. And, and uh, you know, I think what you've done really well is that you've related, when I met you, you really related back to what it's like to be in my shoes. And, and I really do appreciate you hosting me at your house because I think that that's something that can't be shown on a podcast or on a video channel. But, uh, you know, I really do appreciate when people are the same person they are on camera as they are off the camera. And uh, you were definitely one of those people. And, and what I really liked was that you really thought about what it was like to be in my shoes. And then you really related back to like, you know, he's okay. There's a kid here who's from a different town. He's just trying to do ophthalmology and trying to do a good job. So let me, let me talk him through what, what happened for, for me. And, and you gave me your story and you shared that. So I want to share with other medical students who are listening, maybe. So what is your advice for even if you could go back and talk to young John Kitchens and coach him through this again, what would you tell him? And what would you tell any of us who are about to go through this? Yeah, boy, I'll tell you what, um, I would say, first of all, you know, one of the things that I did do, I got very lucky, you know, I got very, very lucky. And I never try to forget that fact. And sometimes it's easy. I tell you, when you get out and you you're making money and you're calling the shots and, you know, you get to give presentations at Academy and whatnot, it's very easy to feel like you deserve this. Yeah. Um, and so it's hard sometimes to step back and go, you know what? Humility is the biggest thing. And probably my biggest vice is that, you know, is to just try to remember to always stay humble just in day-to-day -day life when pressure yeah. builds yeah. to not let that ego side take over with things. Um, that being said, I worked really hard at just the right times. And that was a matter of luck too. And it's a matter of me being a little bit obsessive about things, but we talked about this below. Yeah. Like the one thing, People are going to be smarter than you, but you can work harder. You can choose to work harder than other people, you right. know, right. and that's the great equalizer. If you choose to work really, really hard, it will make a difference. Yeah. Um, and then it's not, it's not where you start out with all of this. Mm -hmm. You know, I have plenty of friends that started out at residencies that were not Iowa, not Bascom Palmer, but have done so much more um, with, what they've been able to do as they finished mm -hmm. and go so much farther because they didn't slack off. They just kept working and working. And so the farther you get, the more hard work will differentiate you from other people. Yeah. Um, and so, 
you know, when you get into your fellowship, it seems like that's when people kind of start to relax and go, okay, now I'm just going to get a job. But mm -hmm. that's when really being a hard worker is going to make a difference. Your first few years of your job, when it's going to make a difference, it's just never give up on that aspect of hard work. That's awesome. Yeah, I actually saw a, a quote this week on Twitter, and it was uh, by Arthur Ashe, who's a famous tennis player back in the 70s, and it said, start where you are, use what you have, and then do what you can. So I think that really speaks to like, you know, just taking what you have and just working with it. And then, you know, eventually that luck's going to come and find you if you're working hard at it. And I think that you are a story that really represents that. And, and Dr. Kitchens, I just want to thank you for joining me. And uh, it's been great getting to know you as, as, a, as a mentor and as a friend and uh, as a host uh, to, to me and to many others. Uh, I think that I can speak that you are uh, not only a good cook uh, with your wife, but uh, you're, you're, you're a family guy and you're a good photographer too. So uh, whenever next time I have some questions about lenses and stuff, I got to pick your brain. Absolutely, Bola. I'm sure our paths will cross numerous times in the future. I hope so. All right, Dr. Kitchens, you take care, okay? Thanks, Bola. All right, bye-bye. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe to Honestly Bilal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or if you'd like to watch on the YouTube channel, you can watch these interviews in their video format. You can find me on Instagram at HonestlyBilal and on Twitter at Bilal underscore 1712. Be sure to check out future chats coming up with medical students, residents, and ophthalmologists in the field today.